So I want to just remind you as well, uh, a couple weeks ago, we um, asked you to all uh, download the Church Center app. That's what, you, what it's called. If you go to the app store and you type in Church Center, you'll see it pop up. It's free. And uh, the reason we're wanting you to get that into your phones is because that is going to be an important piece of us kind of reconnecting again, regrouping is what we're saying, to find one another again over the course of 2020. And so when you download that app, you'll be able to see North Haven Church. You can select that as your church, and then you'll get access to the directory. And one of the cool things is, especially for those of you who are here, but especially those of you uh, joining via the live stream, is you'll be able to easily every week just click that check-in button. When you click that check-in button, Man, it's going to go a long way to knowing that you're, you're connecting with us and, and so that we can better connect with you. So also know that if you've been using the previous app, specifically if you've been taking notes in that app, you might want to um, uh, transfer those notes to a different means because that app will be gone by the end of this month, but all the other functions of that app are going to be present in the Church Center app, or actually are. So... With that being said, next thing, before we jump into um, the message for today, I want to, by the way, I don't know if I said this, my name's Adam, how you doing? <laughs> I, I'm, I'm Adam Sidler, I'm, for those of you who don't know me, if you're new, um, uh, thank you for being with us. Um, I'm Adam Sidler, I'm the senior pastor here, and um, uh, I want to meet you. If you're new, joining us online Man, you know, type in the comments, say, hey, I'm new, and, and I would love to connect with you and to find out how it is that I can be praying for you. That's a big thing that I want to know. Uh, commit to that every week, praying for our people, and especially those that are, are new. And so uh, if you're new here in the building as well, please meet with me after the service. I'm going to be out in the commons, and we can chat a little bit. Um, but you may remember in December, um, we... Uh, partner, so we have been as a church, we've been partnering with a ministry called Talking Bibles. And in December, we attempted to raise money for Talking Bibles, specifically 163 Talking Bibles. Now, these Talking Bibles, what they are is they are audio Bibles in specific languages for areas throughout the world that haven't really heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, and in areas of the world where people are largely illiterate and they can't read, or if they can, they don't have the resources to even get a Bible. So talking Bibles are distributed in these specific languages all throughout the world. And we have an individual that uh, attends here that works specifically in Eastern Africa, um, Paul Lindbergh. You may have met him. And uh, Paul and I kind of talked, how can we as a church adopt a specific area and so we focused in on the Oromo people in Ethiopia. And the way that they do it is certain phases. The first phase is whenever they go to a new region, they uh, pinpoint all the pastors and evangelists in that region, and then they want to get specifically talking Bibles into each of those people's hands. And so we, uh, they identified 163. So then I challenged us in December, thinking it would take us the month, Let's raise money to be able to send all 163 of these talking Bibles to uh, the Oromo people in Ethiopia. <laughs> you, guys, you guys raised that money in two weeks. So it was amazing. It was over $8,000. And, and uh, this is the deal. I told you I'd do this. I'm a man of my word. 
So on April 9th, in two and a half weeks, I am flying to Ethiopia to hand deliver these talking Bibles to the people in, in, in Aroma. I'm going to be traveling with Paul Lindbergh and driving all throughout that country. I can't wait. I, I, I wish I could just teleport there because I hate flying. And that's a 25-hour flight. But, but uh, if Paul's done it, I, I, I could do it too. He's not going to have one up on me. So I... Um, I'm excited, and so be praying about that. Um, I'm gonna, we're going to be putting them into suitcases and, uh, and bringing those talking Bibles with us. Um, all right, so we're in a series that we're calling, calling Crazy Stories from the Bible. And, um, it, you know, crazy doesn't mean that they're not true. I want to make sure we understand the distinction. Uh, Oreos are amazing. It's crazy how, how amazing Oreos are. It doesn't take away from the truth that they are amazing, right? We talked last week about Noah and the ark. That's a crazy story. And today we're going to talk about yet another crazy story that is familiar to many of you. As a matter of fact, you, you may not have grown up in the church. Uh, you may be kind of new to the whole religion thing. And you know the story of David and Goliath. You know the story of a, of a, of a kid taking down a giant with a sling and a, and a rock. You know, we hear that story. I mean, you've probably seen the VeggieTales where Goliath is a huge cucumber. You know, it, it, it's a thing. David and Goliath. All right, so we're going to tackle this story, and if you want to turn, if you have, if you have tactile Bibles, uh, I think that that's really cool. Um, uh, I, I don't, I'm not a Kindle person. If you are, more power to you. That's awesome. But I like, I like the pages, you know. Um, so if you want to turn to 1 Samuel 17, if you have your Bibles. If not, no worries, because it'll be on the screen, um, as well as if you're viewing via the live stream, it'll obviously pop up. So we got you covered. It's in the first quarter of the Bible, so you just kind of turn to that area, or you can look at the table of contents. Um, so 1 Samuel 17, we're going to be starting in that general area. That's where that's, the story of David and Goliath mainly resides. Time period. When does this take place? The story of David and Goliath takes place around 1000 B.C. What does B.C. mean? Before Christ, before Christ. By the way, I'm trying to pen to have the corner market and get copyright on the term PC, which means pre-COVID, all right? <laughs> so help me with that, please, all right? All right, so BC, before Christ, 1000 BC, that's when this takes place. Now, there's two nations that are at odds with one another. We, of course, have the Israelites. Israelites are the, the nation of God, and, and they're at war with another nation called the Philistines. All right? Some of this you may know, so bear with me. But the Philistines and the Israelites are at odds with one another. Now, I want you to look at this picture. This is a modern depiction, or not, not depiction, but a photograph of the actual area where this story takes place. And I think it kind of helps flesh things out a little bit. So I want you to focus on just a few of these places. We don't need to memorize all of this. But um, on the very left, you have Sokah. Now, Sokah, or Soko, whatever, you, however you want to pronounce that, that's where the Philistines... Um, kind of gathered their forces. That was like their kind of their base area. And then what they did is the Philistines then to prepare for battle set up battle lines at the Philistine camp you see there on the ridge of that mountain right there. And the Israelites set up camp 
on the other side of that valley, the valley of Allah, on another ridge. And so you have these two opposing armies that are facing off against each other, and in between then is this, this valley of Allah. Okay, so we got this war between the Philistines and the Israelites, and then we see this warrior, this Philistine warrior within their ranks step into the picture literally. So start with 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 4. This is what it says. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits and a span. More about that in a second. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. And on his legs he wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. And his spear shaft was like a weaver's rod and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield bearer went ahead of him. So what is this telling us? Basically, not only was he a big dude, but he was equipped. He was, like, he was ready for battle. And he was really tall. What is a cubit? Anybody remember from last week? We talked about that because that's how they measured the ark. How long is a cubit? Yep, Cedric's giving us some pantomime there. That's right. So we got from the middle, the tip of the middle finger, all the way down to the elbow. That's why it's so hard, it's impossible really, to know the exact measurement uh, because that's very relative, isn't it? Um, and so what scholars typically say is that Goliath was anywhere between 9 feet to 10 and a half feet tall. That's, a pretty, that's pretty big. Chuck, how tall are you, Chuck? Yes. 6'3". If I'm standing up against Chuck, it's noticeable that he's much more formidable than me. Now, you are a teddy bear, Chuck. You are someone that, that I know would never raise a finger, all right? But it's noticeable. I'm a smaller dude than he is. Imagine, though, you got another three feet. That's, I mean, that's, that is a big person. And so, of course, the Philistines, they, they felt very confident in their warrior, Goliath. So uh, Goliath, uh, he, he goes out of the Philistine camp, and he's now standing in between. So can we get that image back up on the screen? So if you, he's at the Philistine ridge there. He's now stepped down, and he's in that valley area in between both armies. He's the only one. He's facing the Israelites, and this is, what, this is what he says in 1 Samuel 17, verses 8 through 9. It's, he yells at the Israelites. He says, choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we, meaning the Philistines, we will become your subjects. We will become the subjects of Israel. But if I overcome him and kill him, you, the Israelites, will become our subjects, meaning the Israelites will become the subjects of the Philistines, and you'll serve us. And here's the deal. No one wanted to fight this guy. No one stepped up to the plate and said, okay, I'll take that on. Nobody. But can you blame them? Can you blame them? This guy was nine and a half feet tall. 
He was the quintessential warrior of the Philistine army. And this is right, right here. This is, the, this is the moment where somebody steps into the picture. David, right? David. Anybody know how old David was around this time? Anybody want to guess? 15, 16 years old. Yep, we're going to go with 15. But yes, right around that age. 15 years old. David comes into the picture, and, and David, you know, there's, there's not a whole lot special about this kid. 15 years old, he's a shepherd, which at that time it was really kind of a lowly profession. There wasn't really anything glamorous about being a shepherd. It was kind of an afterthought type of job. Obviously essential, but an afterthought. Not only was he a shepherd, but he was also the youngest of eight boys. Any youngest children in the room? Yeah, you know what I'm talking about, right? <laughs> yeah, so he was a shepherd, and he was also just kind of the lowest of the totem pole in his own family. He was also not actually at, in battle. He wasn't with the Israelite army because he wasn't of age yet. He was still too young. So he's, he's, he's tending his flock, and his father basically decides that, that, that he's going to send David with a bunch of food and supplies out to his brothers at the, at the Israelite camp. Basically, his father said, listen, I hear there's this new thing, DoorDash. I'm going to hire you. You're going to take a, all that stuff out to your brothers. Not only did, did he, did he uh, send David out to bring out these supplies, but he's also looking for some reassurance because all of his other sons were out there in battle. So David goes to the Israelite encampment, and he sees the Israelite army. He sees this vision of the Israelites on one ridge, and then he sees the Philistines on the other ridge. And this is what he's witnessing. The Israelites, they form a battle line on the ridge, and the Philistines form a battle line on the other ridge, facing each other across the valley. And the Israelites are standing on their battle line, and they're going, <gasps> battle cries. It's actually in the Bible. I'm not just making that up, right? Philistines are on the other side, and they're going, <gasps> And they're just yelling at each other back and forth. And as they're doing that, David, he makes his way, he kind of shimmies his way up to the front of the, of the battle line there, and he witnesses something. You see, see, Goliath didn't just go down to the valley and taunt the Israelites one time. The Bible tells us that he was repeatedly doing this. And so basically, David witnesses this for the first time. This is what the scenario is. The Israelites stand at their battle line, and they're emboldened, and they feel strong, and they yell. They go, ah! And then the Philistines, they, they are on their battle line, and they're emboldened, and they yell, ah! And then this gap opens up in the Philistine battle line. And out comes this nine-and-a-half-foot warrior. And he walks down the ridge, and he stands in the middle of the valley, and he yells at the Israelites, saying, Come and fight me! And David sees this happen. And David begins to ask a question that nobody else was asking. When David sees this in Psalm, uh, or Samuel, sorry, Samuel 17, 26, 
he asked the men, the other soldiers, Israelite soldiers standing near him, he says, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Two things I want you to pay attention to there. One is this. David doesn't ask the question, what will happen, what will be done for the man if he kills Goliath. What does he say? When? Already a confidence and a faith. And then also he he says, who is this Philistine, right? Who is this guy that should defy who? God. Not the Israelites. What is David concerned with? He's concerned with preserving and defending the glory of the Almighty God. So David, he starts going around the Israelite army asking everybody, who is this Goliath guy? Who is this guy? And the king of the Israelites hears about this, right? The king of the Israelites, he hears that there's this this 15-year-old kid just walking around questioning everything, and he's probably like, what in the world? Who is this kid? Bring him here, because i got to figure out what this is all about. So David goes to the king, and in 1 Samuel 17, 32, David says to this king, he says to, to Saul was his name, he says, Let no one lose heart. Don't worry, he says. Keep this in mind. This is a 15-year-old kid who doesn't have any military training. He's just walked in. He set down his DoorDash bag, and he said, she said to the king, don't worry. I will go and fight him. (laughs) So Saul being the amazing king he was, sarcasm intended, tries to talk David out of it. (laughs) I don't think he was too motivated to not have David do it. But he was trying to talk David out of it, but David gives him a resume. He tells Saul that he killed two creatures. Anybody know what those creatures were? A lion and a bear, that's right. A precursor to the Wizard of Oz. He killed the lion and the bear. He gives gives Saul this resume, and he says basically to Saul, if I'm able to do that, I can can take care of this Philistine. That piece of cake. So Saul then proceeds to put on all this armor. Now, we've probably seen depictions of this, maybe cartoons, ridiculous ones, where David is this little kid, and he's walking around in all this heavy, ridiculous armor. Well, that's kind of the image, but basically David's like, this isn't going to cut it. I don't need any of this. Take all this stuff off. And all that David does then is he grabs a hold of his staff, and then he grabs a hold of the sling. And can we get that image up again? So what he does is he walks down the ridge where the Israelite encampment is towards the base of the valley, and there's a stream there. And you can actually go there today. Anybody been there, by the way? You can go there today, and you can, uh, you can grab a rock from that stream, and these rocks are very smooth. And that's what David does, is he grabs five of these rocks... And now it's time for the showdown. 
David proceeds to to go to the valley to face off with Goliath. And when David goes out there, so the Israelites are battle-lined, the Philistines are battle-lined. Now Goliath has gone down and he's taunted the Israelites once again. And, and, And David then goes down, walks down the ridge into the valley, and Goliath sees him for the first time. And this is what Goliath says, Am I a dog? that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine, he cursed David by his gods. Come here, Goliath said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. My goodness, that would be pretty scary, wouldn't it? But David's weapon was unknown to Goliath. And here was David's response in verse 45. He says, You come against me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. But right here, right here, this is where it takes a turn. And the reason I want to just really kind of pinpoint this moment is because it's here that typically our Sunday school lessons or the messages that we do from the pulpit, they start talking about a narrative that isn't really what the Scripture is saying. Because you've probably heard or you probably have been taught in Sunday school or in church that we are supposed to then approach our giants just like David did. That we're to run at our giants with faith, faith and, and fearlessness just like David did. That we're, we're to reach into our bag and grab those stones and, and take the sling and sling that at the giant and cause it to fall just like David did. And then, and then we're supposed to stand over our defeated foe and then cut off its head, just like David did. And we hear that and we're like, yes! We're supposed to be David. But what if I told you that David is not really the character that you and I should be paying attention to? What if I told you that the story is about someone maybe other than David or even Goliath? What if I told you that an equally, if not maybe more important character in the story to recognize is Saul, the king of the Israelites? Who in the world is Saul? As I mentioned before, Saul is the king, right? He's the one that was, that was trying to figure out who's this kid walking around asking questions about Goliath. And what was Saul doing? What was he doing? See, when Goliath was standing in the valley and he was shouting into the Israelites and taunting them, we see Saul... In verse 11, on hearing Goliath's words, Saul, the king of the Israelites, and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Saul was cowering and afraid, petrified, just like everybody else. And why is this, why is this so significant? Why is it so important for you and I to see this? 
The reason it's so significant is because Israel already had their own Goliath. Did you ever realize that? You see, Israel didn't always have a king. For a long time, they didn't have a king, and they really wanted one. It's like when your kids see all your friends with the Nintendo Switch, and they really want one because all the friends have one. That's exactly what it was with the Israelites. All the other nations had a king. Literally, that's what it was. And they were begging God, say, God, give us a king. We want to be just like the other nations. In 1 Samuel 8, 19 through 20, it's, uh, the Israelites say, say this, we want a king over us. Then we will be like the other nations with the king to lead us, and this is the important part, to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles for us. And so God gave them what they wanted. In 1 Samuel 10, verse 23, the Israelites went and brought Saul out, this guy that, that, that is now going to be the king of the Israelites. And he stood among the people. Saul stood among the people, and he was a head taller than any of the others. In verse 24, Samuel said to all the people, Do you see the man the Lord has chosen? There is no one like him among all the people. And then the people shouted, Long live the king. The Israelites already had their Goliath. They had this guy who stood a head taller than anybody else who was so obviously supposed to be a king, who was supposed to fight their battles for them. And so if Israel already had their Goliath, then what was the concern when the Philistines' Goliath was taunting them from the valley of Allah? Saul was the one Israel wanted and expected to fight their battles for him, but where was he? He wasn't in the valley. He was cowering. You see, instead instead of Saul being the king Israel needed, he was instead Israel's idol. And here's the deal. Israel was relying on the wrong guy. Why do we create idols in the first place? Why do we do that? We seek out and we create idols in our lives to protect us, to guide us, and then to give us whatever it is that we think we need or want in our lives. And in Israel's case, what was Goliath's purpose? Why was Goliath, why is Goliath in this story? What was Goliath's role in this? It wasn't to be an antagonist. It wasn't to be the bad guy. It wasn't to be David's foe. Goliath's role and purpose in this story was to expose the inferiority of Israel's idol, Saul. So then who does David represent? You know, contrary to popular opinion, David does not represent you and me. We do that, though. 
We put ourselves in the story of David and Goliath, and we're like, we're going to face the giants. But we're not supposed to see us in the story of David. We're not supposed to see us in David. David is not a stand-in for us. Consider where David was born. Anybody know where David was born? Bethlehem. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem. What was David's profession? He was a shepherd. In John chapter 10, verse 11, Jesus is the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Consider how unassuming and how much of an afterthought David was so was Jesus in Mark chapter 10, verse 45. For even Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve. So you and I, we're not supposed to see David and, and see us as David. We're supposed to see David as Jesus. So then who are we? We're Israel. See, just like Israel created an idol in Saul and how Goliath exposed the inferiority of Israel's idol, we also create idols in our lives. And Goliath is sin. And sin laughs in the face of the idols we create. We create these idols and we say this or that or, or, or these things will protect us. They will guide us. They will keep us safe. They'll give us what we need or what we want, whether it's a person or a relationship or finances or a job, all these things that we place as an idol in our life. And, and sin stands in the valley and laughs in the face of our idols. And David is Jesus. David was an equipped and ready presence. Jesus was an equipped, is an equipped and ready presence in our lives. And David was quick to defeat definitively Goliath. He hesitated not for a second. And Jesus definitively and quickly defeated sin, defeated death to provide us the way everlasting. There's an interesting tidbit in this story of David and Goliath. Goliath never drew his sword. After Goliath had fallen, when David slung that rock and caused Goliath to, to, to collapse and to fall dead. It was David who unsheathed the Goliath's sword and cut off his head. What, is that, what does that tell us? That tells, that tells me and it should tell you that sin doesn't stand a chance against Jesus Christ. Jesus definitively defeated death and sin so that we could have life. Let's pray. 
Father, I'm so thankful for the privilege of, of this time of remembering the great sacrifice that you became for us on the cross and how it is, Lord, that you definitively provided a way for us to have life everlasting. And so, Lord, I pray today that we would earnestly allow you to reveal those idols that we've placed in our lives like Israel did when they said that Saul's our guy and we're going to rely on him only to find their idol fail in the face of sin's taunts. I pray, Father God, that we would rely on the right guy, that we would rely on you, knowing, Father, that if you are for us, nothing can stand against us.